Alright, before we even start this episode, I just want to disclaim that I do not speak a word of Vietnamese, and as I'm sure you could have guessed by the title, this episode takes place in Vietnam. I'm going to do my very best, but please forgive me if I get some things wrong. So, welcome to the History of Forgotten Lands podcast episode 9, The Empire of Vietnam. Our story today starts, as all good historical tales start, with the Nazis. On May 10th, 1940, Nazi Germany invaded France, and by June 25th of that year, France had fallen. In its place, a German puppet state, officially known as the French State, but more commonly known as Vichy France, was set up. The reason I started this episode talking about France is because France was one of the great colonial powers of the era, and one of the colonies that they held at the time was Indochina which contained what we now call Vietnam. However, because of the turmoil on their home turf, the French government, now in exile, lost control of many of its overseas colonies, and their officers were replaced by Vichy officers. But by the time that the Vichy officers managed to get themselves set up in Indochina, the Japanese Empire, a wartime ally of the Germans, had already moved in and begun projecting massive political and military power in the entire region which meant that the Vichy officers had very little real power over Indochina. Either way, though, Vichy or Japanese, Indochina was firmly under the control of the Axis powers. But World War II continued to rage on, and as it did, the Allies adopted a new strategy. They figured instead of constantly losing, they would try to win. And this actually started to work. Eventually, in 1944, the Allies launched an invasion of German-held France and liberated the country, restoring the government of the French Republic to power. These developments really spooked the Japanese because they feared a pro-Ally French uprising in Indochina, so on March 9, 1945, they initiated Operation Bright Moon. That morning, Japanese troops moved into French garrison towns in Vietnam, trying to pretend like nothing was afoot, but the French weren't fools and they weren't blind, so they could see that an attack was on the horizon. Japanese Lieutenant General Yuitsu Tsuchihashi demanded that the French garrisons turn in their weapons, and in response, the French Governor General of Indochina, Jean Ducot, urged the Japanese to negotiate further. Unfortunately, Decaux's pleas never seemed to have reached the Japanese, and the coup began. Japanese troops attacked every French garrison in the colony, and though the Japanese were outnumbered 55,000 to 65,000, the Japanese war machine proved too much to resist, and they all fell within six days. Now the governor-general of Indochina was Tsuchihashi, but this military victory was tainted by a political failure. The Japanese had assumed that the local population of the colony would readily join them in their fight against the French, but the Vietnamese did not appreciate the Japanese takeover. Multiple Vietnamese garrisons viciously attacked Japanese troops, inflicting crippling casualties on the invaders. To them, an invader was an invader. It didn't matter if they were French or Japanese. In order to quell ongoing Vietnamese discontent, the Japanese Empire announced that they would be restoring Vietnamese independence. And this is where we get introduced to one of the main characters of our story today, Emperor Bao Dai. 
Bao Dai was the emperor of An Nam, which was a French puppet state in central Vietnam. However, at this point, he was now co-opted by the Japanese as the puppet emperor of the new Empire of Vietnam, which he announced on March 11th, 1945. And Bao Dai may have been the nominal emperor of Vietnam, but the real power rested with the Japanese. Proving this was the fact that his own independence announcement speech was written by the Japanese Minister for Economic Affairs. In this speech, he also introduced Vietnam, and therefore us, to our second main character of the story today, Tran Trong Kim. Kim was a popular Vietnamese historian of the era, and he was also announced as Bao Dai's Prime Minister. And Kim took his Prime Ministerial role very seriously. By the next month, he had already formed a cabinet, and by May 4th, he was already meeting with his ministers in order to discuss a constitution. Kim met with his cabinet in Hue, the new capital of the Empire of Vietnam, which is located smack dab in the middle of the country. And the stuff that they talked about at these early meetings of the cabinet were important not only for the history of the Empire of Vietnam, but for the history of the rest of Vietnam as a whole. For instance, it was at these meetings that they formalized the name of the country as Vietnam. Prior to this, the North had been calling itself Dai Viet, the Midlands had been using An Nam or Dai Nam, and the South had been using Vietnam. The idea of calling it all Vietnam was that it would unify the Vietnamese territories into one single national identity. And you may have noticed that the South was already calling itself Vietnam, but now the whole country was called Vietnam. And in turn, you may be asking yourself, well, how is that fair? And this is where we get into a little bit of speculation on my part. This isn't said anywhere in the sources directly, but I'm willing to bet they used the Southern name because Japan was still directly administrating the South. Not as a puppet or a protectorate like the rest of the Empire of Vietnam, but as a direct Japanese colony. Thus, the implication of Japanese supremacy over the state would have been projected across the country. But again, please don't take that as fact, that's just me making an educated guess. Anyway, Kim and his ministers went on renaming a lot of stuff, including the regions of Vietnam, cities, streets, and even the people themselves. For a long time now, the French had been calling them Anamites, which the Vietnamese saw as derogatory, so Kim changed it to the Vietnamians, which has since become the Vietnamese. Kim also strove to promote the use of the Vietnamese alphabet and language, and he created a public education system in which all teaching would be conducted in Vietnamese. The cabinet also created youth organizations across the country. Youths were strongly encouraged to join their local groups, and in them they underwent paramilitary training and were told that they were responsible for the defense of their communities. Kim's judicial minister created the Committee for the Reform and Unification of Laws, which restored a number of civil rights and made punishments a bit less draconian, which saw the release of many prisoners across the country. Unfortunately for Vietnam's future, this included a number of communist revolutionaries. And keep that in mind, because it's going to come back really soon. And last but not least... Kim's foreign minister began deliberation with the Japanese about Hanoi, Haiphong, and Da Nang, 
which were three cities that the Japanese had retained full control of, as well as Japan's colony in the south. So, why did I just burp out a big long list of political reforms that you may or may not care about? Well, it's because I'm trying to show to you that Kim was setting out to create a unified Vietnamese identity, and it was actually working. Everything that Kim and his ministers did in the early days of their government was fundamental in creating a unified national identity, from renaming to the promotion of language and the indoctrination of youth. Unfortunately, there was one glaring political reform that did not manage to go through. The Vietnamese Imperial Army remained under the control of Suchihashi and the Japanese government. But we'll leave political reform there for now and start talking about some real events. On June 16, 1945, it seems that the Japanese government began to fold on full territorial unification for the Empire of Vietnam, and Emperor Bao Dai announced that full reunification was imminent that day. Two weeks later, Suchihashi signed over some of the functions of government in the Japanese-held territories to the Vietnamese, which were to take effect on July 1st, just a couple days later. Unfortunately, this was only some of the functions of government. Japan still largely controlled the three cities as well as the south. And this was looking pretty good for the Empire of Vietnam. They were going to get back three of their largest cities and the entire southern third of their country from the Japanese soon. But, as we know on this show, if something good is happening for the country that we're talking about, something bad has to happen pretty much immediately afterwards, and that is the case for the Empire of Vietnam as well. By June, it was now obvious that the recently freed Viet Minh communists had taken roots in universities and youth social groups across the country. Vietnam's Japanese overlords were still very fascist at this point in history, and therefore diametrically opposed to communism, and they did not like this one bit, so they sent messengers out to the communists demanding that they stop being communists. The Viet Minh ended up killing these messengers, so the Kempei Tai, which was the Japanese secret police, began arresting communists by the hundreds. But a healthy bit of civil unrest wasn't going to slow down Kim's government, at least not yet. On July 13th, Kim met with Suchihashi in person to discuss the matter of the three Japanese-held cities and the Japanese-held south. Suchihashi agreed to relinquish full control of the three cities to the Empire, which was to take effect one week later on July 20th, and he even agreed to hand over the South by August 8th. It may sound surprising that Japan so easily gave up on all this Vietnamese territory, but you have to keep in mind that we're now in July of 1945. World War II is pretty much over at this point. Nazi Germany had fallen in May and the Italians had switched sides long before, so Japan now stood alone, and they were very much on the defensive. In fact, on July 26th, the Allies demanded that Japan unconditionally surrender. And while this may sound good to us in the West, you know, hip hip hooray, we're winning, this ended up being a disastrous announcement for the Vietnamese Empire. You see, the Allies were coming ever closer to Vietnam, 
and fear of reprisals against Vietnamese imperial officials that had collaborated with the Japanese scared away a lot of Kim's supporters, and they started to resign en masse. On August 5th and 6th, the government met in Hue in a panic, but little occurred at these meetings except for mass resignations of Kim's ministers, and ministers with communist leanings demanding that the Viet Minh be given control of the government, as they remained politically strong in the face of the Allied threat. It's also worth mentioning that August 6th, 1945, is the day that Hiroshima was hit by a nuclear bomb. The next day, things pretty much hit rock bottom for Kim, and he was forced to resign his entire government, as he had basically no ministers left. But you can always go lower than rock bottom. The day after that, August 8th, the USSR declared war on Japan, and the day after that, August 9th, Nagasaki was hit by the second nuclear bomb. In the face of this incredible attack from pretty much the entire world, Japan granted the Empire of Vietnam full independence, including the three cities and the South. While this should have been cause for celebration, all it really did was open up an incredible power vacuum in the country. The Japanese imperial overlord was gone, the Vietnamese imperial government was non-existent but still held political power and legitimacy, and the Viet Minh communists were unified but held very little political power. Kim and Bao Dai responded to their newfound independence by establishing a provisional government to operate the country, while Kim attempted to establish a longer-lasting cabinet. Unfortunately for them, any messengers sent out of the capital in the middle of the country were almost universally captured by the Viet Minh communists, who had moved into small towns and cities all across the country. Now, at this point, Vietnam was independent, but there were still a large number of Japanese troops in the country, and on August 12, 1945, Japanese officers arrived in Hue asking to speak with the emperor and gain permission to put down the Viet Minh by force, but just three days later, on August 15, 1945, Japan surrendered. This meant that World War II was over, but all of the Japanese officers and soldiers around the world had to return to Japan, so Vietnam would not receive any help from them in the face of the communists. Trying to make the most out of a bad situation, on August 17th, Kim held a pro-Empire national rally, but it was commandeered by the Viet Minh and ended up becoming a pro-communist rally. This marked a final turning point for Kim's government, and things were about to spiral very quickly. Just two days after the rally, on August 19th, the Viet Minh took control of Hanoi and therefore the entire northern third of Vietnam, and two days after that, even Kim's provisional government collapsed. Then, two days after that, we're now on August 23rd, by the way, for those of you not keeping count, the Viet Minh moved in and seized the imperial capital of Hue. Two days after that, and I promise that's the last time I'll say it, a telegram arrived at the imperial residence, which demanded the emperor abdicate within 12 hours, or he and his family's lives would be forfeit. So, on August 25th, 1945, 
Emperor Bao Dai abdicated, which officially ended the Empire of Vietnam. It was replaced by the Democratic Republic of Vietnam under the Communists' lovely leader, Ho Chi Minh. Existing from March 11th to August 25th, 1945, it was around for only 167 days, but its initial days were marked by what seemed like a pretty successful government. So, why was it forgotten? Usually, I would love to give you some deeper, nuanced take about why the world was focused on thi Well, no, that's exactly what happened here. The world was focused on other things. The Empire of Vietnam existed only in 1945. 1945 is pretty much universally remembered as the year that the Allies triumphed over the Axis and ended World War II. There's probably no event more documented than World War II in all of history, so it's little wonder that the Empire of Vietnam gets lost in all of that historical writing. So, thank you all for joining me for this episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. I know this was a bit of a short one, but I'm recording it at 10pm the night before a vacation. Uh, if you want more content from me, feel free to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Forgot10Lands at both. That's the word forgot, the number 10, and then the word lands. And I hope to see you again next week.